Uh, so Matthew chapter 17, 1 to 13. Uh, a few years ago, I was uh, I worked for Apple, and we a group of us, a group of us were tasked with the the job of going out to Cupertino and writing uh, worldwide training curriculum for the company. So we were uh, about eleven or so of us. We were going to write the curriculum that the company would use around the world to uh, onboard new employees, train them, and and do those sorts of things. Now, for a, a tech nerd like me. That was a great honor. That was a huge, huge opportunity and, a, and a, something I'm really thankful for even to this day. Getting to go on Apple's campus and, you know, do my work there and things like that was, was pretty awesome. But one of the things that was the coolest is that we each had divisions of responsibility that we were responsible for in writing this curriculum. And as part of that responsibility, we had set up appointments with people who were doing the work of creating this kind of technology, making the very iPhone that we carry around in our pockets or making the software that goes on it or whatever. And some of our job was to go and sit down with them and just talk to them about the technology that they're developing and what parts of that were necessary for training new employees that are coming into the company. And one of the reasons why that was so good is because as you're seeking to prepare people for the job that they're about to do, when you can get a peek behind the curtain, when you can look at the future of technology or when you can look at the future of whatever, the people that are conceiving this in their mind, what their goals really are, you're not just standing on the outside, looking in, guessing at what their motivations might be. You're actually getting a peek behind the curtain and you're allowed to see what the goal really is. That allows you so much latitude in being able to train new employees for their task. Well, this morning, the disciples, a few of them, are going to go up on a mountain with Jesus. And it's there on top of this mountain. We have this really strange scene. But it's where the disciples, or three of them at least, are going to get a peek behind the curtain. They're going to get a, a rare glimpse into what the entire world is really about. What is really going on in the here and now. And it's going to change them forever. Let's look at our text, Matthew chapter 17, 1 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we require help for both understanding and applying this to our lives. And so we pray for it now. Be here amongst us, a presence that we can feel through interpretation of your word and application to our hearts. Convict us where we have misstepped, where we have sinned, and lead us into repentance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Jesus has been in the past, uh, through the book of Matthew, introducing people to the kingdom of heaven. And as he has gone through the towns and villages healing people, there have been more than one person that has come to Jesus and has really wanted to follow him. We've seen this throughout the book of Matthew. People desperately wanting to follow them. Of late, we have also seen some of his teaching has pushed some people away. They want absolutely nothing to do with Jesus, much less following him. The miracles maybe are kind of nice, but it doesn't, it's not at the expense of what it's going to take to actually follow this guy. And then others have been questioning Jesus as to whether or not he really is the Messiah. Do these miracles point to the fact that he is John the Baptist, reincarnate maybe? Or is he Elijah or one of the other prophets? Or is he the Son of God? We're not sure. But in chapters 14 to 20, we see quite a bit of Jesus taking the people that really do want to follow him, and he's explaining to them what it actually costs to be a follower. What does it actually mean to have to follow Jesus? And so we've learned in the miracles over the past few chapters, we saw in the miracles of the feeding of the crowds that, the, that Jesus is capable of providing for his disciples. He multiplied bread for, to feed the 5,000 families there. He multiplied bread to feed the 4,000 families. And it seems though after those miracles that the 12 that are following him most closely they seem to have forgotten that Jesus can actually do this. It's like it just goes in one ear and out the other, or in one eye and out the other, if you will. And so we learn another important component of following Jesus in those miracles is that belief in Jesus is no less than trust in his provision. That we have to trust that Jesus is able to provide for us, not least of which salvation, but also of our needs. So then Peter, following that, confesses exactly who Jesus is. But then in the passage right after that, where we were last week, he doesn't even realize that the Christ, or that to be the Christ, he's going to have to go through the grave. That Jesus is going to have to die. It was last week that we saw that the heart of discipleship is a willingness not only to just follow Jesus conceptually, to understand who he is and to believe who he is, but it's actually to follow him through death. A willingness to give up your own life and die for that belief. A willingness even to deny yourself. 
of your own opinions and your own preferences and all of those things. To deny yourself. They have to be willing to follow Jesus to death. Well, this morning, we're looking at a story that, that may be familiar to many of us in this room. Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And on the surface, this story can seem very strange. And, and, and admittedly, it is very strange. Uh, like, what does it mean to be transfigured? What does that mean and what, what would it look like? Why has Jesus even done this right here and right now in, in the story? Why just these three disciples? And why not the rest of the disciples? Why do they have to keep it a secret from the rest of the disciples until Jesus rises from the dead? Well, what's with Peter wanting to set up all the tents there for Jesus and Moses and Elijah? That's, that's kind of weird. Is this really Elijah and Moses here? If so, how do the disciples know it? Now, most of these questions we're not going to answer. All right. Uh, <laughs> some of it will be speculation to answer. We'll, we'll dive into some of them. But, but most of them are not chiefly the concern of what the text is here for. Instead, I want us to see the reason that Matthew has chosen now to tell this story in this place. It's not merely chronological. It's not merely the next event that happened. It is that, but it's not the only reason. Why has Matthew even chosen to include this? He wasn't there on the mountain when it happened. Why has he chosen to include this? What seems to be the case is that yet again, he's exposing the aim of discipleship. The real aim of discipleship. What's the goal that I'm after as a disciple? What does it even mean that I am a disciple? And what am I aiming towards and so there's two things that I want you to see in this text. The first aim of discipleship is to recognize Jesus' true worth. To recognize Jesus' true worth. Jesus selects the disciple that would go up on the mountain, the disciples that would go up on the mountain with him. And he pulls them apart from the rest of the group. He takes Peter, he takes James, he takes John, which we see frequently in the Gospels, forms this little bit of an inner circle for Jesus in that they're always there for Jesus' most important moments. Now, tons of books are written on leadership and how this is an example of leadership, but the Bible doesn't seem to really tell us much of that. It just tells us that these three were frequently there uh, in his more or less inner circle. We don't know why or anything like that or why them uh, of all the others. But they're there before the three of them Jesus is transfigured. Now that first question, what does it mean to actually be transfigured? Uh, one good piece of evidence that we have is actually when Peter, who was there as a witness, takes up to writing his own book in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18. We, he actually gives, the expl gives an explanation there uh, that we don't see in Matthew. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what the transfiguration was. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. So for this brief moment in time on this mountain, Peter tells us Jesus' true majesty was displayed. 
That's, that's the purpose of this event of the transfiguration, that Jesus' true majesty was on display there for all three of them. And not only that, but God the Father was giving glory and honor to Jesus and telling the disciples about the glory and honor that he gives to Jesus. So the purpose, Peter says, of the transfiguration was so that he could reveal his majesty there before his disciples and that God the Father could give glory and honor to him and make sure the disciples were well aware of that. And he does that, God the Father does that, by saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, remember that Jesus had told the disciples standing around just in the previous passage that many of them would not taste death until the Son of Man comes into his kingdom. And I said that was mostly referring, it seems, to the resurrection at the end of the book and then the subsequent rapid spread of the church across the world and then the equally rapid decline of the Jewish system of worship culminating in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So the transfiguration, though, is a moment when these, these three disciples get a foretaste of what is to come. All the things that he's been talking about now come to bear in who he is as he's exalted before them. As God the Father gives him glory and honor and praise. When when Christ's true glory is on display for them and God the Father affirms the certainty of what Jesus has already told them. They see him shining like the sun and his clothes becoming white as light. But there's a problem that we see in verses 3 and 4. Look with me. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, Peter always makes us feel a little bit better. (laughs) All right? And he should. Because it's a a daunting task to be the spokesperson for this group, but he's kind of taken it upon himself to be so. And he he speaks very candidly a lot of times. And for all of us who are loudmouths, Uh, He tends to make us feel a lot better about ourselves when we put our foot in our mouth. And so Jesus is transfigured before all of them. His, His glory is unfurled before them. And then out of nowhere, Moses and Elijah appear there with him. So how do the disciples know that this is Moses and Elijah? I have no idea. Perhaps in heaven we wear name tags. I'm not sure. It's possible, but I don't know. Perhaps, uh, you know, there's some other way that they know. Perhaps it was told to them. I have no idea. But Peter makes a suggestion to Jesus. Jesus, aren't you glad that you brought us up here on this mountain? Now, however you feel about that statement, that's not the mistake that I think Peter makes here. Peter's suggestion is that the disciples make them three shelters, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And Peter is probably, most likely, we're not told exactly, but 
probably he's starting the celebration of the festival of booths, or he's wanting to commemorate the celebration of the festival of tabernacles. You may see it, the festival of tabernacles, the feast of booths, the feast of tabernacles. You see it written a couple different ways in the Bible. But um, in the festival, in the festival of booths, the Jews commemorate the wandering through the desert of the children of Israel. And they do it by coming together and they, they spend basically seven days in these, well, more or less tents, really, is what we would call them. And some of them still even do this to this day. They get together, they live in tents for seven days, like kind of like camping, I guess, and they celebrate this festival. But the prophet Zechariah prophesied about the day that the Lord would come. The day that the Lord would come, he says in Zechariah 14, he foresees this day when the Lord will come and will do battle with basically the opposition, do battle with with the world, really. And when he comes to do battle, the Jews then, the picture is, those that are with him on that day will be able to celebrate the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem unhindered, unencumbered. They will be uh, free to celebrate freely the, the Messiah's coming with the Festival of Booths. So in spite of the decimation that the Lord would bring, the Jews will be able to keep the Festival of Booths. Now, we already know that Peter and the disciples have more, really misunderstood Jesus' first coming and the kingdom that he was going to set up and what it was going to look like. And we know that what they're thinking is that Jesus is going to set up a physical political kingdom in the right then and there, that he's going to establish his kingdom right then and there. And so it's reasonable to conclude that what Peter is thinking as they're on top of the Mount of Transfiguration is, this is it. This is the moment where it's all going to take place. And we're here to witness it. This is the beginning of the whole thing. And then Jesus appearing with the holy ones is exactly what Zechariah 14.5 says that he's going to do. He's going to appear with his holy ones. And so Peter's probably thinking, he's about to do some conquering. And we're about to celebrate us some festival of the booths right here. So Peter wants to start this festival right then and there. And so setting up these booths was meant by Peter to be a thing of honor. But do you notice what he's done? Look at what he's done here. It's not just that he suggested setting up these tents. He wants to set Jesus and Moses and Elijah on equal ground. To honor them equally. And I got to be honest. If I'm standing there next to someone who appears from heaven, I don't know what would, would come over me. John, in the, gospel of Reve- or in the book of Revelation, starts worshiping an angel that appears next to him. And the angel says, no, don't worship me. Worship God. He's the one you should worship. I'm a servant just like you are. So what would come over us if we were stuck in that situation? Probably the same kind of thing. Peter is enamored, but in his awe, he wants to set up Jesus and Moses and Elijah. What he thinks is honoring Jesus all on equal footing. 
But then this is what I love about the Gospel of Matthew and his telling of this story. He makes sure we understand that God interrupts Peter as he's speaking. That's great. He he just cuts him off mid-sentence. And he says, basically, no, Peter. That's the way I think we should read this as a reprimand. He says, no, Peter. This Jesus that you're looking at is not Elijah. He's not Moses. He's not one of the prophets. He is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Obviously the words emphasized are mine, but the point that I think was we're supposed to read this as more or less a reprimand to Peter, a rebuttal to what Peter is doing and saying. These three are not on the same level in any way. Peter has failed to hold Jesus in proper esteem. He sees these three heavenly figures. He puts them all on the same level. But what's clear and what Matthew is trying to show us if we're paying attention is that Jesus, his being divine, is greater than either Elijah or Moses who have both come from heaven just now, as we found out. And yet Peter wants to make them all three equals. Now what Matthew is doing here is intentionally showing us that Jesus is similar to Moses, but he is beyond Moses. He's similar to Moses, but he's greater than Moses. Similar to Moses, but better than Moses. But in order to understand that, we have to have in our minds Exodus 24. We have to really know our Old Testament. And if we do, we get up on the little breadcrumbs that he's leaving behind. The similarities are drawn from Exodus 24, where Moses and the children of Israel gather together at the base of Mount Sinai. First, we're told in this, uh, in this event, in the transfiguration, that it took place after six days. So six days had passed. The seventh day, um, is the, all of this takes place on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Exodus 24, 16, we see that it was after six days on the seventh day uh, at about that time when the glory of the Lord covered Mount Sinai and came before uh, Moses and God called out to him from the midst of the cloud. We're told that the transfiguration takes place on a high mountain, as we're also told in Exodus 24, 13, that the scene with Moses takes place right there at Mount Sinai on the mountain of God. In Exodus 24, in several places, we're told that the glory of the Lord was dwelling on the mountain in a cloud. And here we see the glory of Christ uh, unveiled before us uh, in this this text. And the cloud is the thing that covers over them. And and out of it comes the voice of the Lord, same as on Mount Sinai. This also gets to a key difference we're going to get into just in, in just a second. But at Sinai in Exodus 24, 16, we hear the voice of the Lord call out from the cloud, as we see here on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the result of all of this uh, for Moses is that the glory of the Lord has an effect on Moses and then it causes all of those who are with him, all of those that hear the voice coming out of the cloud, all of those who are around to witness it, which is the whole nation of Israel, all tremble in fear. In fact, they say, Moses, why don't you go up there and interpret what God is saying? Why don't you come tell us because we'll die if we go up there. They're scared. And what do we see here on the Mount of Transfiguration? But the disciples are terrified as they hear this voice the same way the nation of Israel was. However, 
there's some key differences between Jesus and Moses here as well, which magnify the supremacy of Christ in this story. For one, Moses merely reflected the glory of God on his face. This wasn't Moses' own glory that people were seeing and had to have covered. And we're told that about that in Exodus 34, 29 to 35. It, was not, uh, it wasn't Moses' own glory. It was the glory of God that was burned into his face, if you will. And it was reflected to the people. And that's what caused them to, to take a stand back and not able to be around him. But here, what do we see with Jesus? This isn't merely God's glory reflected as it was with Moses. This is glory as John puts it, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This glory is innate within Jesus, merely being restrained until this moment. In Exodus 34, Moses uses his garments to conceal this glory burn that's on his face. He uses his garments to conceal it. But you notice in in the passage of the transfiguration, Jesus' own clothing can't hide his glory. In fact, it reveals his glory. Jesus' own clothing shines and becomes radiant with his glory before all the disciples there on the mount. But the superiority of Jesus might not be better summarized than with what God says about both Moses and and then ultimately Jesus. In Exodus 33, 11, he says that he meets with Moses face to face like a friend. But that's not what he says about Jesus here in verse 5. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's not just greater than Moses. He certainly is that, but he's not just greater than Moses. He's also the one to whom Elijah was pointing. What do we see on the way down the mountain? But the disciples have that question. What about Elijah? Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus affirms Elijah does come first. He's affirming a prophecy from Malachi 4, 5. I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But then he tells them in verse 11, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus is not only greater than the first figure, Moses, we see standing there. He's also greater than the other whose part was played by John the Baptist and served for what? Point forward to Jesus coming. So the revelation that is here in this scene is that yet again the disciples, and especially Peter, still don't have it precisely right. They still don't quite understand. He highly esteems Moses and Elijah for sure. He's a Jew. He looks back to the Old Testament and says, yes. So then he sees Jesus amongst his comrades and he goes, they're all on the same ground. Amazing. Not quite right. Doesn't have the proper order. As highly as he regards Jesus, he still has him undervalued. Jesus must be held in higher esteem than anything else in our world in order to be truly worshipped. Now this runs completely counter to a culture which continually engages in worship of the self. 
second aim of discipleship, to follow Jesus by obeying his commands. To follow Jesus by obeying his commands. So what then is the result of properly valuing Christ? For seeing him as the greatest thing that life could offer. What's the result? What do we see? What's the application here? As it turns out, obedience. And you might think to yourself when you read this passage, and you see all these great things happen in it, Jesus is transformed before his disciples, all these questions are coming to your mind. And then all of a sudden, everything is normal again. And Jesus is walking down the mountain with his disciples. They're about to encounter a boy who's possessed by a demon, and and the disciples are trying to cast him out, and we go back to life as normal. And you're left with this question, that was a cool story, but what was it about? Why did Matthew even tell it to us other than to go, wasn't that neat? But this is a rare instance in the Bible where God the Father actually applies the passage to you. He just says to you what you're supposed to take from this scene. And what does he say? Listen to him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It doesn't just mean hear his words. It means obey. In other words, the natural outcome for rightly valuing Christ For who he is, is obedience. If you highly value Christ, if you put him in the place where he belongs, the outcome is obedience. Jesus says it this way in the Gospel of Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, And don't do what I tell you. I must not be the Lord, is what you're telling me, since you don't obey what I'm telling you. Why do you call me Lord and not obey? Now, this is particularly important for our world, because we live in a culture that would like to claim affiliation with Jesus and yet refuse to obey. Now, we could easily point the finger outside the walls of this church. We usually point to the culture at large and see people that claim affiliation with Christ and yet pursue things like sexual perversity and yet claim in the midst of that, I'm a Christian. Now we would say about them or we would say to them, no, no, that's not obedience. Jesus, as a first century Jew, affirms the sexual ethics of the Old Testament. So to follow him is to obey those same ethics that he's calling you to. Why do you call him Lord and not do what he's telling? And we'd be right in saying that. The problem is it's very easy to point the finger outside the wall. This also applies to every single one of us here in this room. Why do we call him Lord, Lord, and do not forgive our neighbor as Christ has forgiven us? Why do we live with grudges? Why do we hold those relationships that we have in animosity and continue to hold that grudge between us and another person? Why do we do that? 
Why do we call him Lord, Lord, and don't forgive as Christ has forgiven us? Why do we call him Lord, Lord, and lust after other people? Whether it's seeking out images on a computer, engaging in promiscuity with boyfriends or girlfriends, having adulterous relationships, or merely taking second and third looks at others that are walking by. Why do we call him Lord, Lord, and get angry with other people? They cut us off in traffic. They don't give us the best customer service. They're unattentive to our table while we're sitting waiting for our food to be delivered. They're our children, just being children. And yet we lash out in anger at our fellow man who James tells us is also created in the image of God. Why do we call him Lord, Lord and do that? Why do we call him Lord, Lord and yet fret over what the future holds? We worry in spite of Jesus' command not to. If we properly understand Jesus for who he is, then what is death to us? Death is the ultimate fear. I want to know how I can not die, how I can not be afraid of death, the man told me. President Xi at this very moment is fighting for a way to survive and live forever. Isn't it the ultimate fear? Well, for us, if we trust in the Lord and we actually rightly esteem Christ, what is death to us? What is poverty? Next to death would probably be poverty as our chief concern. What is poverty to those who believe that they're going to inherit the earth after they die? Why do we call him Lord, Lord, and swallow our tongues around unbelievers? You could go down the list like this forever, but the point is the same. When we engage in sin, failing to obey Christ, what we have really done is failed to properly value him for who he is. The outcome of proper value of Jesus is obedience. Every sin in our life reveals our undervaluing of Christ and what he offers. The Jewish people are expecting a prophet like Moses to rise up. Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So when this prophet raises up, you shall listen. And so God is giving to the disciples a little elbow, a wink, and a nod back to Deuteronomy 18, 15, telling them, this is the prophet that I was talking about. This is also the reason that in the Great Commission, at the end of the book, we have Jesus saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So we properly value him and that we're baptized in his name. We put him in the Godhead. He's the triune Godhead that we are baptized into his name. And then what do we get? What do we do from that 
proper valuing of Christ, we do as he commanded us, and then we teach others to do likewise. To value him and to obey him. I don't know about you, but if the aim of discipleship is to to value him rightly and and to obey him, to properly value Christ and to obey his commands, then I come up woefully short every single day. In fact, I find myself day in and day out short of perfection. Far, far too short of perfection. If I'm not desiring things that I shouldn't have, then I'm taking things that are perfectly fine to have and I'm elevating them to a position that they shouldn't be in. That could be my wife, that could be my kids, that could be things that I could buy or sell. Money that I could have or not have. If if I'm not doing one, I seem to be doing the other. So I undervalue Christ and I overvalue the things of the world all too often, those same things that are going to be perishing. And I know I'm I'm not alone Consumerism in our culture has no limit. We will trample one another to death, literally, to save $200 on another TV. And when we're not trampling each other to death, we're complaining that the billionaires have too much money. Well, if you just give us some of that money, everything be fine. Well, the billionaires, that's the problem. See, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. What would I have? Two more iPhones? We have more than anybody in the rest of the world. We overvalue stuff. And we undervalue Jesus. Every single one of us. And we're lost in this storm of our own greed, our own jealousy, our own strife, our own anger, our own lust, and of various other sins that we're entangled in. Perhaps when the disciples heard the voice of God in the cloud, I imagine that they were probably confronted simultaneously with all of those same feelings. Remember Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6? As soon as he sees God, he starts confessing all his sins. Here the disciples are terrified. And I suspect at that very moment, they realized what was at stake. They realized the unparalleled nature of this man named Jesus that they'd been following. And they knew at that moment that they had failed to properly value him. But in the height of their terror, do they find a God who crushes them? who takes pleasure in their misery, who has that maniacal laugh as they're terrified, who crushes them under the weight of his own holiness and relishes in their destruction. No, that's not who they find. What do they find? Jesus coming to them in their terror and touching them and saying, have no fear. Rise. There are moments where we fall under the weight of conviction. It's where we get a sneak peek 
behind the curtain. And we see that we have undervalued Jesus. It's that, just that little peek behind the curtain. We come to confront our own sin. And we realize at that moment, I have really undervalued Christ. But it's from that sin that the angel tells us at the beginning of the book that this same Jesus came to save us from. Though he's perfect and glorious and undeserving of death, he he died a death that I deserve and God punished him with my sin and all my undervaluing of him. For all my greed, all my lust, all my inappropriate desires, and in our conviction of our sin, God's word can then promise to us if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because he's already condemned Jesus for that sin. He then says to us that his word is written to us so that we might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is saying the same thing to you that he said to the disciples. Rise, have no fear. Repent and believe in Jesus. Now let's be clear. In our world today, If we do not properly value Jesus Christ, we will be rebuked by the Father. Now, the reason why that's important is because literally every cult and every other religion changes the narrative on Jesus. He's got to be something different. For the Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Islam, it doesn't matter what the list goes on. He's got to be something different, even Judaism. He's got to be something other than the Son of God. And it doesn't matter how nice people are. It doesn't matter how many good works they do. If they have changed the narrative on Jesus, they have undervalued him. And if they have undervalued him, they are not obeying him. And it's on him that all of this rises and falls. That's the same for Roman Catholicism. Any other person that we put up there as an intercessor between God and man other than Jesus is to uh, is undervalue Jesus for who he is. There is only one intercessor between God and man, Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter how nice you are. That's not what's at stake. It's belief in this person, Jesus Christ. But what that also means is that denial of self is paramount because we're just not as important as Jesus. That's why he says self-denial. Whoever comes after me must deny himself. Why? Because you're not that big of a deal. He is. That means things that I want, preferences that I have, things I hold over other people. Worship of Christ is what the church is about. Not about any one preference. It's about following his word. The other reason why this is important is that if you claim allegiance to God you must realize the need for uncompromising obedience to the Son. Period. 
any of those things that I brought up, which all of them we're guilty of, any of those things is a need for us to come before the Lord in repentance. Every single one of them. Uncompromising obedience to the Son. Or else, we are just not following. But third, and I think this is the most important thing that we can remind ourselves of, as disciples who desire to follow Jesus and rightly value Him for what He is and who He is, If we fall, when we fall, though we fall, Jesus is compassionate and gentle. Hardest thing for me to believe sometimes is that in the midst of sin, God loves me. How can that be? How can that be? I know how wretched I am. You haven't even begun to feel it. I know it. How is it possible that he can still love me? How is it possible that he's not fed up with me yet? How is it possible that he's just not tired of me? Because of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what what comfort there is for us who routinely fail at valuing Christ. What comfort there is for us that you love us. That in spite of all that, in spite of our sin, you love us. What a comforting feeling that is to even just think about. In spite of being hard-headed and stubborn of heart, failing to engage in routine spiritual disciplines even, to pray as we ought, to read as we ought, to follow as we ought, to obey as we ought, in spite of all of those routine failures for us, You still love us. You still welcome us into your family and at your table. You still bid us to confess our sins to you. You still tell us that you're faithful and just and will forgive us. How comforting is that? Pray that our worship be informed by that very feeling that we have. Knowing Christ has died for us and has welcomed us to the table. God, give us that sense of longing in our heart that makes our worship true where we both desire nothing more than to have a closer walk with you and a deep yearning for the day when Christ returns. Give us that now in Jesus' name. Amen.